Today on Catfish Best Source, we're stepping away from catfishing one last time, but we're going to stick to the river. We're going to bring in Madison Eklund, a gal from, well, all over the United States, who's going to talk about her excursion kayaking solo from Minneapolis to the Hudson Bay. Today we are going to talk, oh boy, I screwed that up. Anyway, I was going to say this is our last episode of season number three. If my, my producer Dale would jump in here, he's been our producer all year. Hurry up, Dale, you're yeah. eating up time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> nothing like botching it on the last. Oh, there. Oh, yeah. oh, make sure our cameras work. Speaking of botching, <laughs> yeah. fun, fun audio. Oh, yeah. you just got audio? Yeah. Uh, oh, no. You just got the right arrow to the right. There we go. Oh, Boom. okay. Got it. Got it. Nothing like botching the last uh, episode of the season miserably, huh? Yeah. Hey, we are, we're all about technical hiccups and improving on the fly here. And, and I get the wrong yeah, camera yeah. again. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of uh, people just keep up with just the Catfish Best Source shows, you did a cameo on the GFBS three-year anniversary show last week. Well, that's right. I did. And I even talked about this show. But anyway, I wanted to bring you in here. We... Put out, what, 15 episodes, I think? Yeah, I think this is episode 15 of season three. Two lives, Two which we've never done before, yeah. and... Those are fun, yeah. The 13 episodes. Jeremy Hayne. Yep, uh, those beer casts are always fun. Anyway, I wanted to bring you in. I wanted to thank you for a good season. Help me out. You do a lot of work for us, and uh, hopefully we get you back next year for a season four. Very much appreciated. I've learned a ton. This is, yeah, yeah, doing it. And just like, just all, you covered such a wide variety of guests and the whole catfish and fishing world. So it's, yeah, this has been a big new learning experience. The way this year went, we may have to change the name to Fishing Best Source next year <laughs> just because we kind of stepped out of the catfish realm a lot this year. We talked catfish ice fishing, balls. kayaking now. Uh, we had two beer casts and, uh, you know, but it, it was a lot of fun and I hope the viewers really enjoyed it. Absolutely. Well, let's have an awesome season finale. Let's get back to your station there, Producer Dale. <laughs> All right, like I said, we have Madison Eklund in who kayaked from Minneapolis to the Hudson Bay. Before I get going, I have to remind everybody, we still have openings in our tournaments at Drayton and Moorhead. You can sign up for both. Drayton is August 11th and 12th in Drayton, North Dakota, the Catfish Capital of the North, the Catfish Capital Challenge. Uh, $10,000 guaranteed for first place. You can register for that at catfishdrayton.com or get a hold of me. The Moorhead Tournament is July 8th in Moorhead. It is a one-day tournament at MB Johnson Park. That is a $120 entry fee. You can go to i29classic.com or if you're local, get a hold of me. Uh, uh, as we've had all year, we'd like to thank Half Brothers Brewing. Hat shirt tonight. Uh, Half Brothers has been with us the past two years and I'm, my sample for today, I brought the pink fluffy unicorns dancing on rainbows. We've had it on both live casts because John Falk loves it, but I haven't got one yet. So I had one left at the house, so I brought it so I could enjoy pink fluffy unicorns dancing on rainbows in the last cast of the year. And always, it's lovely. I want to thank Half Brothers for being our naming sponsor all year long. As you already know, our friends from Half Brothers have pink fluffy unicorns dancing on rainbows today. These guys are awesome. They know how to make beer. We told you that two shows ago at our special live cast with Jeremy. He explained a lot in our tasting. Over the years, I find myself now liking IPAs and sours. Of course, they always have Classic, Nodak 23. They now have Lumberjack Snack and many, many others in the tap house 
at all times. There's so many offhand. They change weekly. I don't even know what's there. Check them out on social media, halfbrothersbrewing.com. See what's new. See what's on their website and what's on tap. I want to tell you about their tap room downtown, North 3rd Street. Do yourself a favor if you're in Grand Forks. Head down to the tap room for one of the many beers I've told you about. Hang out with your family and friends. Kids are welcome at Half Brothers. Enjoy pizza, which is amazing. Pizza rolls, nachos, and, of course, my favorite, pretzel bites. Tell them Captain Brad sent you. Check everything out on the web again, halfbrothersbrewing.com, tap room on North 3rd Street. And between now and next season, be sure to check out Half Brothers Brewing. And our buddy Thunder Ray. Everything, Every car and truck needs a repair or maintenance at one time or another. May I recommend Thunder Ray's auto repair in Grand Forks? Ray is a friend of the show, friend of catfishing. And when he started his own shop, I knew he would do great. Just drive by the shop on North Washington. They're always full of cars. That tells me they're good. Our family's taken all of our repairs to Ray since he opened the shop. Ray fixes all makes and models. Besides fixing your car, they can mount any tires you want. They can fix rotate balance tires if you need. My personal experience, as I say every week, they can get you out of a jam with your wheel bearings as well. Oil changes, tire changes, brakes, starters, alternators, electrical, every other thing you can imagine for your car. And did I mention they can restore a muscle car as well? If you want fast, honest service, think Ray's. Thunder Ray's on North Washington Grand Forks. For more information or to make an appointment, thunderrays.com. Okay. Spent five minutes talking with Dale and commercials and all the other stuff. Let's bring in our guest of honor from sunny, cold, snowy California. I guess we have Madison Eklund. Welcome aboard. Hi. Thank you for having me. So I got to start this out. Last year, I was a guest speaker at Riverwatch, which is a high school organization. And they have their annual meeting at the Alaris Center. And this Hank Kohler, who made the trip from the Otter Tail River to Hudson Bay back in the 70s, was the guest speaker. And this gal walks in with a beanie on, and they introduced you as to what your plans were. That's actually how I met you. I even had lunch with you that day. So that's how I got to know you. And... You were telling me about it, and we got together a couple other times and just visited about the adventure, and of course, we were faced with flooding and everything, so I had the unique experience, well, among others, I, I suppose, where we texted while you were on the adventure, so I got some play-by-play as well last summer, but let's start at the beginning. So um, you grew up in New York, you got to Grand Forks via the Air Force, and now you're in California, so let's just back up a step Tell us how you got from one end of the country to the other. <laughs> so I grew up in upstate New York. Um, in college, I met my now husband, and uh, he commissioned into the Air Force. So we've kind of been all over the country because of his career. He's been to Texas. He's been in Florida, New Mexico, Colorado. You name it, he's been there. Most recently, we were stationed in Grand Forks for quite a while. He was there about six years. I was, about, I was there about three and a half. We did long distance for a little while. And then right after my kayak expedition this summer, I got to sleep in my bed one night and they moved us to California the next, the next night. So that nothing like a, Dale says I got something going on. Give a little volume boost. (laughs) Oh, I just did that. There we go. Okay. She said, he said you weren't loud enough. So Dale passes me notes from time to time and I still don't know what he's talking about half the time. So (laughs) am I loud enough now? Yes. You're much better. Thank you. Um, so you obviously got into this outdoors thing, hiking, kayaking, all that, when you were younger to get, because you're not that old to begin with. Yes. Um, 
what took you into that just to be interested in it? So I just grew up, we grew up in the woods. Um, I lived in a log cabin on five acres of land with my parents and my sister. And um, I just spent my childhood outdoors for the most part. We'd go up hiking in the the mountains, the Adirondack Mountains. Um, We would go to summers in Maine. Uh, My grandparents had a house up on a lake in Maine. So we'd go there every single summer. It was an easy vacation to do. That's actually where I got my start in kayaking. I saw the neighbor's kid had boat uh, kayaks out. And I was like, I want to do that. I want to learn. I want to do this. And then my grandparents went over and asked, can we borrow the kayaks? So I actually just got photos uh, a couple months ago. My grandma sent me my photos of my very first ever time being in a kayak. And it's so funny how far I've come in, you know, 15, 20 years, however long it's been that I've been kayaking. How old were you when you got in it the first time? I was probably six or seven. Oh, you were really young then. it's, It's been about 20 years that I've been kayaking. You're really young then. So <laughs> anyways, so you got to Grand Forks and you started planning this trip. What ever would possess you to do that big I of a trip? I get that question a lot. Um, for me, moving to North Dakota was really challenging. Um, I came from a place where outdoor recreation was everywhere. It was so easy to find it. It was easy to find a community who was involved in it. There was every sport you could think of from rock climbing, ice climbing, hiking, backpacking, kayaking, you name it, it's there. I came to North Dakota and there wasn't as much of an outdoor recreation scene and it was harder to find people who were interested in that. There's a lot of fishing, there's a lot of hunting, but other than that, there's not much in North Dakota. So I was having a hard time with it. And one of the things I started doing in advance was planning for a long distance kayaking trip. I knew the land uh, that Minnesota was the land of 10,000 lakes. I knew there was a pretty good chance I'd find a good amount of water. So I started looking at my options and um, I saw that the Red River goes through town. Um, I started researching uh, its tributaries and what it flows into and what kind of long distance trip I could plan. And I started developing this idea of doing the Bois de Sioux River, the Red River, and Lake Winnipeg. Uh, Once I moved out to North Dakota, I started talking with some locals and asking about different things to be aware of on the river, safety issues, the dams, stuff like that. And somebody told me about uh, Natalie Warren and Ann Raiho, who had done this trip 10 years ago, 11 years ago, actually now. And I just started reaching out to them, looking into the trip, and decided this is this is what I want to do. I was already planning a long-distance trip, and this trip that they did covers what I was already looking at doing. So that's kind of how I got involved in this crazy adventure. So you got to be pretty experienced to do these long trips to begin with. And just beating around, getting right to the point, What were you shocked? Were you ready? Um did you say, I'm not quite ready for this, or did you have a good handle on everything once you got rolling? I feel like there is some element of kind of throwing caution into the wind with these uh, these kind of trips. If you wait until you're perfectly ready, it will never happen. It will never happen. Um, so for me, I feel very comfortable in a kayak. Most people do this route in a canoe because a canoe is considered the better way to do it, but I've never even sat in a canoe, let alone paddled one, so not a great option to choose a canoe on a route like this. So I picked a kayak. I'm very comfortable in a kayak. I know what a kayak entails as far as portages and such. Um, So I just I started planning for that. There's a lot of unknowns. There's rapids up north. I did not have whitewater experience, so there was a lot of things that could go wrong, but I was just very aware of 
what I was going to be facing. I did as much research as I could. I started researching about how to run rapids. What did the rapids look like? Everything I could think of just so I knew what I was getting into, even when my skills may be lacking in some areas. So, um, I don't, I don't think you're ever really fully prepared for a trip like this. Yes, I have experience in many things. I've done a lot of camping. I've done a lot of navigating. I've done a lot of solo trips, but I've never done whitewater, so that was a concern. And I've never done a trip of this caliber where it's so long, just back to back to back to back, keeps going. It just, you know, you, it's hard to see the, the light at the end of the tunnel when you're on a four-month-long trip. Well, I asked the question because I thought I knew how to fish when I started guiding, and I quickly found out that... <laughs> Well, you got a lot to learn, son. <laughs> yes, yeah. And, and that, that's kind of how it happens. You know, you, you get into it and you figure out what works and what doesn't. And even if you think you're an expert, you're going to learn a lot on the trip. Yep. And I think that's, you know, to my detriment, I think that's a lot of things in life that I've, well, I'm not ready for that and the opportunity passed. I mean, I'm guilty as anybody for that. But so you said you didn't have the white water and you kind of obviously had done the research. I'm guessing you had watched video on it. I'm guessing yes. you kind of had an idea, but for lack of a better term, did you actually get there and have any oh shit moments when you saw it in person? I, I was having a lot of oh shit <laughs> moments leading up to it, especially once I got off of Lake Winnipeg and I was like right at the mouth of some of the rapids, some of the towns there. I was just like, oh man, like this is where it gets real. This is where it's going to get crazy. And, um, I actually mentally, I was having a hard time at that point. I was suffering from a lot of loneliness. I was going to be separating from a group of canoers that I had been traveling with for a little while. So I was really struggling at that point in my trip, just from a mental standpoint. And I had actually looked at potentially cutting the trip off there. And I was worried about finishing in time to be able to get back to help my husband move. We were going to be relocating to California with the military. So there was just a lot on my mind. We were in the process of buying a house during all of this. It was a zoo. Um, for me, I ended up contacting uh, Natalie Warren, who had done this trip prior. And she kind of talked some sense into me. And she's like, this this last section, this this part you're stressing about, she's like, we stressed about it too on our trip. We overreacted. It was not as bad as we thought it was going to be, but only you know what you can do and what you're comfortable with. But she urged me. She said that this is the reward for the rest of the trip, and she was completely right. It was my favorite part of the trip by far. You know, we got ahead of ourselves there. I want to go back because I was watching the, bl the blog. Did you try that was Sorry, good. my watch is talking to me. Let me take that off. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing like having a real podcast here at Catfish yeah, Best Source. Just had to I want to back there. up to Minneapolis because you had flood all summer long. I want to back yes. up to the beginning. You were delayed a month at least, if I recall, to even start this adventure. I, had, I actually only got delayed a week at the start. I was supposed to launch May 1st, and I waited until the 7th because the water temperatures were so cold. It was, it was literally like 32, 33 degrees, and by the time I launched, it went up to about 35 yeah, nothing like hypothermia to start a trip. Uh, yeah. I remember one of the blogs you ran into, uh, you know, high water. And, of course, people maybe don't know, the Minnesota River, you had to go upstream, not downstream, yes. in a flood. So the hardest, I would guess, the hardest paddling was that first stretch. I, I wish I could say that. It, it was definitely one of the more challenging sections. I don't know if I'd consider it the hardest. So I remember the one post in particular you ran into a, a snag pile of some sort that had a weird current on it and you were concerned and you know i mean what kind of went through your head when you saw that and how did you 
maneuver it. There, there was a few sections like that. Um, there was a really bad one in Shakopee, and it had hung up tons and tons of trees and logs had hung up on some sort of industrial scaffolding or something that was in the river. And it had blocked off about three quarters of the river with debris. Um, the rest of the river was flowing through that remaining quarter, and it was so angry and so hard to paddle against. And I was looking for ways to portage around it, and there really just wasn't any good options without getting stuck between the logs trying to get out. So I ended up paddling against the current there, and I was able to get through. There were snags further up river um, where I actually did have to get out and portage around them because it was just too too strong of a force of water. Um, also on the Minnesota, when I hit about Henderson, Lesseur area, the river flooding had gotten so bad that the passage beneath the bridges was starting to get really, really narrow. And I ended up getting off the river for two weeks because the rivers were flooding so bad. Yeah, I knew you had to take a break in there somewheres. But yes. did I really just say somewheres, Dale? Somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're making a good last impression here. Um so you got through the Minnesota and Big Stone and all that you had to cross. So yes. the Bois de Sioux is the originator, one of the original ridge rivers of the Red. How how little is it? I mean, it's I mean, tiny. We did it in a day. So it had good current though to push you through. Yeah, yeah. I was um, I was actually pleasantly surprised with the Bois de Sioux. Uh, it's a very channelized agricultural river. Um, I was told it was going to be really gross and I wasn't going to enjoy it. And while it did kind of have a, a funk to it, especially because of the flooding and everything, um, it was actually a really beautiful river. I hit it right around sunrise. It was beautiful. I followed uh, a flock of about 25 immature bald eagles the whole way through that day. So they were just, we were following each other up the river the whole day. Well, that would have been cool. I wouldn't have thought of that. Yeah, then you definitely get, a little little blessing in disguise. Then you get to the headwaters of the Red, and, and now you're following what I thought in Canoeing the Cree, the book by Eric Severide, was probably the most interesting stretch until they got way up north. But Yeah. So you must have, pretty high water, you must have just blown right through the Red for the most part. I did, I did, yeah. And I actually did a lot of long days, too. I'm sure you're aware of the Red River mud. Um, it was nope, hard no, being... nothing about it. Sorry, can't help you. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was hard being a kayaker with the Red River mud. You know, it's one thing if you're in a motorboat and you can kind of just beach wherever and step off the front of your boat into, you know, solid ground. But with a kayak, I can't do that. I'm getting out right at the water's edge. So a lot of the time I couldn't get out until I reached another boat launch. And I think the furthest stretch is like 75, 80 miles between boat launches. So um, I didn't, I didn't stop unless there was a boat launch. I did not get out. It was, it was a challenging section in that aspect. Well, I'm going to tell you two stories about Red River Mud and my very, very limited kayaking experience. Okay. The very first day I tried to fish out of my kayak, I went to a spot that's a known shore area and it's kind of steep. So I figured the mud would be a minimum and getting in no problem. At the end of my trip, which I thought was very successful, and you'll totally understand this, I went up kind of this little channel. I saw this nice, flat, dry spot. Perfect. I ran the nose up. I stood up because I'm really great at standing in kayaks. And I stepped onto that dry spot, and I went right past my knee. Yep. So now... I have one leg past my knee in mud, and the other is stuck in the kayak above my head. 
<laughs> and I don't know if you've seen all of me, but I'm not that flexible. So that was uh, now I'm on my belly trying to get off of there and hook my, not lose the boat in the current of the river. That was part one. But part two, you might think is interesting. We were in the very, very low waters of 2021 paddling places where boats hadn't been in a couple months just to see what was out there. And I found a buffalo skeleton, like the whole thing. On a sandbar, which we have clay bars here, not sandbars. Yeah. So I pulled right. pulled up to it, and I was like, I am going to pay the price, but I want this skull. <laughs> and I found out that even though those clay bars look wet, they're rock hard, and you can run around on them. Yes. So yep. there's two very distinct things here in the Red River, but I avoid that mud like a plague. I mean, I am good at using my boat to get the nose up and off the, on the ramps and stuff just to not get that mud on me because once it's in your clothes it's never coming back yes yep i i was very muddy until i got up into uh the very end of the red river up in manitoba i was very very muddy for that whole section of my trip especially the red river so i only got out at boat launches that was the only time i got out I had um, one spot on the red where I really needed to have a bathroom break and I had been looking for like eight miles and I had not found a spot to get out. Nowhere where I could have like thrown my body up on a ledge and pulled myself up. Nothing. There was nowhere I could have gotten out. And I found this one spot where there was like a stream that came in and a bit of a wash and I pulled my boat up as far as I could, 17 feet long. I was able to get it pretty far up into the mud and I tried to step out and I just kept sinking and kept sinking and kept sinking. And I took a video of it and I literally went up to my hip in mud. And I, I was like, okay, well, I'm not getting out here because I don't think I'll stop sinking and I'll probably get stuck in the quicksand at that point. Well, that I'm not even going to say it. <laughs> <laughs> at that point, you might as well just have finished the business and got back in. <laughs> so, well, Dale's telling me we should do a couple of sponsors mentions here. I got lots more questions because we haven't even got out of the Red River yet, and you got a lot more to talk about. Where's my chiller bait tanks here? Everyone in catfishing knows that fresh bait is a key to better success. Keep your bait fresh and alive longer with chiller bait tanks. Chiller bait tanks are the only fully insulated rotomolar cooler on the market and the most durable bait tank on the market. Chiller bait tanks offers patented pending operating system for controlling gases. What, what this means is the 21% oxygen is what they're focused on, and they put it into the pump bay, confining the bubble agitation, basically to make happier minnows. Available in 30 and 45 gallon models, which both include free shipping. Each tank includes three, a free three-stage quick change filter and customizable power cord. Did I mention free shipping? Chiller bait tanks are compact and durable to give you many years of worry-free bait keeping. For more information or to buy your last bait tank now, look them up on the web at chillerbaittank.com. Brothers Firearms, located in the Grand Cities Mall. They buy, sell, trade, new, use firearms. Brothers has got you covered with anything you need from tons of firearms, silencers, all the way to flamethrowers, which I always mention if you look behind me in the video, you'll see Paul's flamethrower. Brothers Firearms is also veteran-owned. Check out Brothers Firearms in the Grand Cities Mall in Grand Forks, open Monday through Friday from 11 to 6, Saturdays noon to 4. Brothers Firearms, protecting America since 2015. That's brothersfirearmshop.com. Okay, back to where we were. So I was going to mention, isn't it interesting when you get to the end of the river at Lake Winnipeg and it turns to clear water? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Actually, I think my favorite part is once I got through the, the St. Andrew's lock, you're on the upside, when you're on the upstream side of it, it's all quicksand mud, Red River mud. You get downstream of it and it's sand. It's like a beach. And yep. I, I don't think I, I, I cried at that point. I was so excited to have sand finally after like two and a half months. And I was just like, there's finally solid ground to step on. I don't have to worry about mud anymore. Yeah, that's kind of weird because we fish up in that Lockport area a lot by those that lock and dam. And that is one thing I noticed the very first time I went there 20 years ago was you get below it and it's sand beach edge, which is weird. And the water looks exactly the same. Yeah. Yep. And I also think it's weird that you go by grand forks, you see parks, you go by all the ag land and there's nothing. And then Mm -hmm. you get there and there's just the giant, huge, beautiful homes. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. There was a lot of pretty homes to look at for sure. So that it's just a whole unique change of the same river. And no matter where you are, the water looks exactly the same. Yes. Yes, it does. So how was it to work your way up past Devil's Creek into the, into the mouth? Cause I know there's like three main channels that go into the lake. There is. And it actually, it gets hard to follow the route there because everything gets turned around. You're up in a swamp up there. And with the high water I had, a lot of the spots that normally are grassed over were underwater. So there was even more. I mean, I had high water my entire route all the way up through, all the way up onto the haze until the end. I was still high water. So um, for me, the the marsh was a little challenging. Again, nowhere to get out. So I had an entire day of paddling where I couldn't get out for snack breaks, lunch breaks, bathroom breaks, nothing. I was stranded in that boat until the end of the day. And... Um, I also, in that section, I had a storm that was blowing in, so I was kind of chasing the weather and trying to get, get done with my, my day before the, the weather hit. So there was a lot to take into account there, but it, it's a nice marsh. It's um, You can definitely tell it filters the water. It goes from very murky to very clear all of a sudden, and then it's you hit the lake and it just opens up like an inland sea. Wow, that is a huge lake. So I want to yes, ask about weather because you brought it up. I'm going to go back to Lake Winnipeg, but weather was weather ever a major, major issue on the trip? constantly. (laughs) I actually, I've been joking with my friends. I think I have a bad weather curse. Um, I had seven tornado uh, watches along the length of my trip. One of those watches escalated to a warning with sirens and, you know, everybody had to hunker down. There was the emergency alerts on your phone. Um, I had 105 degree weather when I was on the chain of lakes in Minnesota and then high winds. So I had to be up at like 3am to be on the water to beat the heat. And then as I got further along, Um, I got up onto Lake Winnipeg. I had some really nasty wind days, Um, two major thunderstorms, one at the end of Lake Winnipeg and one on the Ekamamish River. Um, The first thunderstorm, I had golf ball-sized hail six hours after the fact. And the other thunderstorm that I had, I was pretty sure I was going to be hit by lightning. So, I mean, it's just, it was constant bad weather. And I feel like it's followed me out here to California, considering we've had 12 atmospheric rivers since I've arrived here. (laughs) So it's been pretty crazy. You know, you also said something there. I'm going to jump ahead again. You had a phone. You had warnings. You had probably maps. You had communications. Let's go back to the early 1900s when Eric Severide did it. Yeah. That's got to be scary as all get out to not have any of that with. Yeah. And I mean, even with, with all the technology we have today, you can still get blindsided by storms on the river. As I'm sure you know with guiding and such, sometimes something just blows up and comes out of nowhere. Um, Both of the really bad thunderstorms I had, the one with the golf ball hail and the other one with the lightning storm, 
neither of those were called for on our weather apps. At that point, we had no cell service, so I was working off my Garmin inReach. My inReach is usually really good with the weather, and it's just so localized. The weather is so, so weird in those areas that something can, can blow up out of nothing and be there in a matter of minutes. So, um, I mean, it's still, it's still hard even to this day to make sure you have the weather right. If, when you get up into the northern rivers, is there cell service up there? No, no. Once so. I got um, north of like the bottleneck on Lake Winnipeg, where the Narrows is, pretty much from then on out, I did not have cell service unless I was specifically in a a town. Okay, so it's not as good as I was kind of thinking there for a minute, but that's to yeah. be expected. So backing yeah. up to Lake Winnipeg for those people who are listening and have never been up to that part of the world, Lake Winnipeg is a monstrosity. You look at it on a map. And it doesn't do it justice. Um, you obviously understand what it is. My first real lesson, other than seeing a bowl on the southern end ice fishing, was we went up to Reed Lake, Manitoba in 2007. And I got sick in the truck. And I woke up six hours after I got sick. And we're in Grand Rapids, Manitoba. And I said, oh, what lake is that? And they said, Lake Winnipeg. We drove straight for six hours And we were still at Lake Winnipeg. So that just tells people how big it is. And she was in a kayak. (laughs) It's it's roughly 280 miles long from end to end. And it's separated into like two major basins. You have the South Basin and the North Basin. And it bottlenecks kind of like an hourglass shape in the middle. And they get some very crazy weather on Lake Winnipeg because it's so shallow. They get massive waves that blow up and they're very, very close together and it can rip small recreational crafts apart. They call it big so windy it's for a very reason. Very intense weather up there. Yep. They call that one big windy for a reason. Yes. Yep. It does hold big fish though. So you got, <laughs> you know, the part in, in my mind, I think the U S stretch of the river and the red is probably the, you know, run-of-the-mill stuff. Lake Winnipeg obviously is a challenge uh, just because it's so big and you're so little in so big. But I think the cool part is when you get up into the Nelson and all those areas. So let's talk about the real wilderness now because you're on your own once you get into that. Yeah, once I get off of Lake Winnipeg, there is three places where I have contact with civilization. There's Norway House, which is the first, uh, First Nations community that you reach. A little bit later on, there's Oxford House, which is the second First Nations community that you'll reach, and it is your last town on the trip. And then shortly after Oxford House, you're going to reach um, Knee Lake Fishing Resort, which is a fly-in-only fishing resort, and that is your last touch with civilization before the end. And it's it's a long stretch until you reach the end. So how, how far, once you get out of Lake Winnipeg, how far do you got left? I want to say, if I remember off the top of my head, it's about 380 miles. And about a week of that was from the Knee Lake Fishing Resort to the end. So was it tough? Is that where you ran into the rapids, or is that just tough pedaling? Uh, A little bit of everything. It's so remote. There is nobody out there. It's, you know, you don't see people unless you're close to one of those towns. And then on top of that, the Hayes River has 45 sets of rapids from one end to the other. So you've got to traverse all of those. And I had high water, so I couldn't really count on any of the experiences of people before me because they didn't have high water when they went through. So I don't know what the rapids are going to look like. 
I have charts and maps and all this paperwork showing me where it's going to be and how to run them and what they should look like. But the reality is the rivers change, you know, with those papers, those charts are however many years old, stuff can change between now and then. And with the high water, everything kind of goes out the window. You got to play it by ear once you get there. Right. Because, yeah, I mean, you're what? How many people have done this? Not very many. My route specifically from Minneapolis to Hudson Bay is only seven, seven that I found documented. There was you, the two gals. There was two guys about 10 years ago because I talked to them when they passed Grand Forks. Yep, and I, I spoke with them to help plan my trip as well. And, and Severide. Yeah, so the whole trip, you know, Hank Kohler, he only did Otter yes. Tail Up, so he didn't get they the They did Minnesota. Otter Tail Up, and then there's a variation where people will go from um, – uh, Grand Portage, Voyagers, Boundary Waters area, and they come up through, and then the trips overlap on Lake Winnipeg onward. So there is another route. So yes, okay, and a lot of people have gone that way. So is there anything really scary that was there? Any you know thing that just what have I done? Or did you have any wolf, bear, or bad people encounters that would be really scary? <laughs> I was worried about polar bears because the last few days of your trip, you are in polar bear territory just south of like the world's biggest polar bear denning site. So that was a little nerve wracking. Um, Rules have changed a lot in the 10 years since Natalie um, has gone on her trip. So it's harder to get uh, like protective firearms across the border. So I did not have a firearm with me. A lot of people ask that question. Um, I had a lot of other bear prevention stuff, but it's, you know, you don't know what's going to work and if the bear is even going to react to it. So thankfully, I did not have any adverse encounters with anybody or anything on uh, that section of my trip. I was hoping to see wolves. I was hoping to see caribou. Um, Did not see either of them. Um, I was hoping to see any type of Arctic wildlife, and it was just kind of a lot of geese and ducks and stuff, and that was all I really saw. So So are the riverbanks steep like they are here in on the red or are you kind of up where you can actually see something? Um, it depends on the section. Uh, the upper haze, it's very flat and, and low line. You're in swampy areas. And then once you get into the rapids, it starts to get really rocky. And once you're downstream of the rapids in that last stretch before the end, you have extremely tall white mud cliffs on either side of you that are extremely prone to erosion. So, I mean, you have to watch where you're camping because the cliffs are falling in constantly oh just another a thing just another day just another camp <laughs> <laughs> so you ended this towards the end of summer i mean was there i mean it gets cold up there did you have to deal with any of that or did you yeah i went from like 90 degree weather to 40 degree weather really quick um the last few days of my trip i was actually getting frost on my sleeping bag and on my tent and the the mosquitoes were frozen to my tent and i'd have to rip my ground sheet off of the the frozen ground to be able to start packing up my tent so um it did get very cold towards the end and i was definitely like i got to stay moving to keep myself warm at that point um the group of canoers that i had traveled with on the north basin of lake winnipeg they finished a couple weeks later than me And they said that they had beautiful weather. It was nice and warm. They enjoyed it. So I must have been in the middle of like a cold snap or something when I was finishing my trip. You know, you brought up mosquitoes. I read about, I've read about mosquitoes up there. I mean, were they a problem? Because I always read about people who've been up in that part of the world and the mosquitoes are just unbelievable. 
You know, everybody told me that, like, oh, you have no idea what you're going to get into. The mosquitoes are going to be so bad. I'm going to be honest with you. The black flies in uh, Minnesota were worse. They call them gnats in um, – they call them gnats in Canada, but they're black flies to me from being in the Northeast. When I was in uh, Minnesota and, like, the upper upper Minnesota area and the Chain of Lakes, that was the worst. That I, I was covered in welts head to toe, bug net, you know, the whole nine yards, and I was still – getting chewed up alive. And that was far worse than what I experienced in Manitoba. I had a friend lived in Norway house for a while. He said the mosquitoes were just terrible there when he lived there. But I I can believe it. I think I got lucky though. I think the high waters probably helped keep some of it down. Um, I definitely did not have a hard time with the bugs up there and I was expecting it to be a lot worse. Well, you must be related to me when it comes to black flies because I'm the greatest black fly deterrent for customers there is. They all come to me. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I um I seem to be the favorite for any bugs, mosquitoes, black flies. I could be at a barbecue in somebody's backyard and everybody's fine and I'm just covered head to toe in bugs that are trying to bite me. Yeah, so. mosquitoes not so much, but black flies, I mean, they come right to me. I don't know, they always have and it appears they always will. Unfortunately, the best deterrent for them doesn't exist anymore. So there was a bug spray that was just amazing and Thanks to the year 2020, it's no longer in production. Oh, no. So, I will say that all of the fishermen on the Minnesota River, they all have a different way to handle the mosquitoes and the black flies. And when I was complaining about it to people along the way, they're like, oh, try this. Oh, try that. Have you seen this? Have you? They're giving me their personal concoctions that they've made. And I'm going to be honest with you, none of them worked. I was still the personal feast of all the black flies in Minnesota. So I tried everything. I tried being stinky. I tried having every type of bug spray, all of them, tried all the mixes. Nothing, nothing kept them away. Hmm. I am, a, as far as mosquitoes go, I am a big fan of the thermocell. That does work for me big time. I, I've heard of that. I found that I find that just plain old backwoods deet works really well for mosquitoes with me. As long as I have it on me, they leave me alone. Black flies, they do not care what I put on me. We were no, no. Black flies, they have an attitude of their own. We uh, we were in a northern Saskatchewan fishing camp one night, and of course the mosquitoes got in, and you can't sleep when you can hear them, and then mm-hmm. they'll tear you apart if you do get to sleep, and it's hot and sticky. And the guy I was rooming with, you know, I'm Brad Dawkin, um, pulls out a thermocell, lights it up, and sets it on the floor between the two beds. We slept like babies, and you could hear me the other other two rooms smack, smack, smack all night long, and everybody's tired the next day, and we're like, hey, what's the problem? We had a thermocell. We were good. So it, I am a believer in that. I did look into one of those for my trip and decided against it. Um, for me, it was just get in the tent before the bugs get really bad and then kill all of the bugs that came in with you and then don't leave the tent again until you're ready to go. Always, <laughs> always a good strategy. Yes, yep. Do you want to run muskox now, Dale? Yeah. We're going to run our last commercial break of the season, and then we'll wrap up this interview. Stand by. Hey, if you move snow with a skid steer, you've got to see the muskox difference. A patented back drag feature allows operators to blow snow while back dragging in front of obstructions. You know, garage doors, siding, and fire hydrants. Now, this saves time and money while lowering injury risk by decreasing manual labor. The optional dual auger, called the Dually, helps the operator eat through big snowfalls, ice-crusted snow, and blow more snow while back dragging. And the glide plate? 
It allows you to glide over grass and gravel without ripping up the soft surfaces. Subsequently, create an instant torque of the lower cutting edge to break up snow and ice to better expose hard surfaces. See the Muskox difference. Go to muskox.com or Facebook at Muskox Snowblowers or call 218-288-1905. See the difference for yourself. It's the Muskox difference. Alrighty. So, you didn't you have some issues getting out of there once you finally finished? Before, back up, back up. I'm going to ask another question first. What's it like when you finally get to the end? <laughs> to the end? Yeah. Um, I'm going to be honest. Do you jump for joy or didn't you care because you were so tired and glad to be there? So, my last two days on the river were my longest days. I had a, a 58 or 59 mile day and then I had a 65 mile day. So they were long days. They were up before sunrise, get the boat packed, be on the water by the time the sun breaks the horizon. And it was nonstop paddling until the end of the day. Sun is setting. You can't go any further. So very, very long days. I was tired. It was cold. Um, I had a little bit of rain. It was kind of buggy. It was just not really great weather. It was kind of miserable, to be honest with you. Beautiful conditions, though. Like the just the scenery was amazing. It was just breathtaking. And I had nobody to share it with. So, you know, I'm trying to explain it over GPS to my, my parents and to my, my husband. And they're just, you know, they, they don't, they can't see it. So they're not getting it. And I was convinced I was going to cry when I hit the dock at York factory. And when I reached York factory, um, it was so late in the day that the sun had already set and I was losing the light in the sky. And, you know, there's polar bears up there. I'm waiting. I have to find the armed guards to be able to like get my boat up, up the banks and get myself in. So as soon as I landed, it was like, all right, let's go. It's go time. Like I, I got to get my stuff up the bank. I got to get packed up. I got to get camping. I got to figure something out. I don't have a lot of time left. So I didn't even have time to be emotional. I just finished it and then woke up the next day in York factory. And I'm like, what did I do? How am I here? <laughs> Jeez, nothing like anticlimactic. Zoom, yeah. zoom, zoom. Oh, well, we're here. Yeah, and I'm here. <laughs> what do I do now? So didn't you have some we're issues getting back out of there? What was that? Didn't you have some issues getting back out of there? I did. I did. So I had um, plans to take a a boat out of York Factory at the end, which is kind of the the best way to go out. It's one of the cheapest ways. Um, they have a, a boat that does tours up there. Super great company. The guy was really nice. And we just had a misunderstanding, I think, uh, between our communications. I thought he had told me to reach out to him when I hit Norway House and, you know, touch base on dates because he was going to be flexible I told him, you know, this is my first long distance trip. I don't really know when I'm going to finish. I have like a rough idea, but I don't know the exact date and I won't know until I'm closer. Um, From my understanding, I thought he said that he was flexible and just to reach out to him when I hit Norway House. So when I reached Norway House, I called him and he was like, yeah, no, I already have like trips booked and you got to go on one of the days I have the trips. So at that point, I was like, okay, well, the date I said isn't going to work. And I thought we were flexible, but, you know, I understand having to run a business and all of that. No hard feelings. So at that point, I started looking for other options, um, paddled to Oxford House, got back into cell phone communication again and was able to try to track something down. I actually stayed in Oxford House for a few days because I had several flight plans fall through, planes that were supposed to come get me that suddenly didn't have availability and all sorts of issues started coming up. I was really stressing about not having a way to get out of the Arctic at that point. 
Um, I went so far to actually contact the Manitoba Park System and try to see if I could get like a staff helicopter ride when they do the change of staff at York Factory to see if I could catch a ride with them. Then there's the whole issue of the kayak. If you're on a flight, your your kayak has to be strapped to the plane or the helicopter to get out. And a lot of places aren't rated for external loads up there, so they can't take it with them. So it just became a whole ordeal. I was really, really lucky. I ended up connecting. It was the weirdest, like, three times around connection that brought me to a company, Gogol Air, out of Snow Lake, Manitoba. And they came in and gave me a helicopter ride out of York Factory. So... It was kind of kind of a crazy experience. And then, to make matters worse, the train that I was supposed to take home got delayed, canceled, and then we ended up on a bus ride, and I had to get cargo shipping my, for my boat. It was, it was a whole mess. It was a disaster trying to get home, so. Wow. That was uh, issues. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Very stressful, especially right before the military is moving you across country, and you have no idea if all of the pieces and parts are going to fall in place. Would it have been cheaper to leave the boat behind? I, I, yes, probably it would have been cheaper. Um, but I feel like at that point I have invested quite a bit into the boat and now there's sentimental value with the boat and it was coming with me. If I had to stay late and my husband had to move on his own and I had to catch him later, that was what was going to happen. So fair enough. So you told me you're writing a book and it's about yes. this. So, yes. um, what do you know about that so far? I mean, if you're writing it, you never know. I've written a couple books, so. Yeah, I'm, you know, this is my first time writing a book, so it's another crazy adventure for me. Um, I have a manuscript, I think my first, my first type up was about 53,000 words. And I think I'm sitting about 56,000 words. I'm working on editing through it now, the first round of editing. It's going to have many, 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 many rounds of editing. I have a lot of information still to add. I've been doing interviews. You know, I reached out to you. Yep. Um, lots of stuff. You to did talk get that, about right? And lots of stuff to kind of work on with it. So hopefully within the next few years, I'll have something physical that I can start selling to people. So, well, good luck with that. I mean, I've had one pretty much written for three years that I haven't done anything with. <laughs> Yeah, it, it can be tough. It can be tough. So, But you, if you've been into it long enough, you know that you'll get on a roll and you'll spend three or four days just that's what you do. And yes, then all absolutely. of a sudden it's just <laughs> and you, yeah. you lose it. Yeah, it's been a crazy month here this month for us. We've had a lot of traveling and a lot of family visiting. So like this month has been terrible for working on the book. But then sometimes like I just get into a flow of it and I'll lock myself in for like four hours and I'll have thousands and thousands of words written and then I won't touch it again for like a week. So I, I get it. When I wrote the first one, I had the draft done in six weeks and then I didn't look at it for another three months. Yeah, I feel that. I, that's pretty much what I did too. Oh, Dale got a co comment or question. Hang on. Yeah, so okay. here's a quick question for Matt. I, I was looking on the Expedition Alpine's uh, Facebook page uh, just the other day, just kind of catching up on just some background stuff that just how you're talking about the book. It sounds like, too, like just like print in general is kind of uh, on the decline for magazines, books, or at least availability in retail spaces. Uh, I think this is awesome that you, you guys are putting this together and, and then you've got this book coming out. And you No, know, I used to have a subscription to Backpacker magazine. I don't even know if that's still around uh, a few years back. Yeah, just to hear experiences and the writing and that. Uh, how has this got to feel just to put something out there detailing all this? I'm excited about it. Yeah. Um, as you were saying, Backpacker Magazine and um, I'm forgetting what the other one, I think Outside Magazine, 
both of them, from my understanding, are ramping down production or aren't producing any more any more physical prints. So you have to have like a membership online to be able to access them. So um, one of my friends actually started producing Trails Magazine, which is a another physical print magazine. Super beautiful, big pictures, big pages, um, nice quality paper. Like it, it's it's a very 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 well made magazine. And they just came out with their first edition. I'm super excited about it. So I, I'm looking forward to like being able to write my own book and having something print coming out. Um, you know, it's getting harder and harder to be able to connect with with the outdoors and some of the stuff that used to be really accessible suddenly is becoming less accessible now where you have to have subscriptions instead of just going to your newspaper stand and buying a magazine. So well, I like to hold it and feel it. And I tell you what, there is nothing better than when the proof copy of your book comes. Because you're sick of flipping through Word document pages, and I can't edit on the screen. I have to actually print it out and go through it with a pen and then go type it all back in. But that is the coolest thing ever when those proof copies show up for the first time and you get to open it up and and then you're sitting there with the pen in the book going, why did I write that? Why did I do that? (laughs) (laughs) And then you're right back to square one. But that is... uh, really really cool thing and you know i i'm very critical of the youtube age frankly yeah. because nobody reads yeah and yep. i mean well video video is where a lot of stuff is going you know i just went to a photography conference and you know it's all about conservation photography and the outdoors and video is where everything is heading even photography so yeah i i get it i understand it i worked in the tv business forever but i just I think a lot of in a lot of cases it's the same recycled garbage over and over and over again whereas yeah. a book is an individual person's take on it that you can hold that you can go back to. Yes. And you know from a you know being a little bit selfish I mean I like to sell books and if I sold more I think I probably would hurry up and get this third one produced. Third one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So for me, my editing's all on Google Docs, and because I was working for my trail journals and my blog page, and I had all these sources where my my recollection of this trip was, um, I imported each of them as a different color. So right now, my my whole manuscript it's like a hundred and something, hundred and ten pages long, and it's just rainbow colored from each source that it came from, and I'm working on editing it through and then putting it all into one color as I go. So Might I recommend? I would recommend finding. Maybe not a real editor for this, but someone who's really good at editing. Yes. Yeah. I actually, I'm working with an author coach and uh, we do biweekly check-ins. Every two weeks he checks in. We do a video once, uh, a phone call once a month. And he is a, not like a a spell check type editor. He's a developmental editor. So Mm -hmm. he'll help kind of get the picture that I want for my book. I had that on the first book. And I thought we did too many steps. I really yeah. did by the end because we had things we would change and then we would come back and change it back and then change it back again. So we went through three steps that I feel we didn't have to go through and that got expensive. Yeah. The second time I used my writer from the TV station, we had both moved on in life. But I mean, you're a professional writer, English major, you know your thing about that. And, in, mm-hmm. and and she had zero experience in fishing, and it was really awesome to put a separate set of eyes on that to see if it made sense. That's where I'm saying is, I mean, having someone like that with a set of eyes who has no idea what they're reading really yeah, helps yeah. going through paragraph by paragraph. 
he's he's into the outdoors my my author coach um and he's going to do my developmental editing um but he doesn't kayak from my understanding and i'm before i even do the editing process with him i'm going to send out snippets of it to friends and family and be like please read this because i know you know nothing about the outdoors and then if it makes sense to you then it'll make sense to everyone yeah i think that's a that's a big deal i mean finding someone who doesn't know anything about it because I mean, I just as article writing, I have a tendency to write to what I want to read, mm-hmm. and I tend and to you, also and you be know about what you're writing about, and I know so. about what I'm writing about, and then I tend to be ten steps ahead as mm-hmm. far as what I want to say. So yeah. I mean, and that's probably why I always say YouTube is just the same recycled crap over and over because it is, and I always try yeah. to be one step ahead of that when I do my writings. So anyway, we're going to wrap this up. Um, you said you're looking at another trip sort of like this. Do you have any other big kayak trips in the future in your head? I mean, you probably don't have any solid plans yet, but let's talk kayak specifically. Yeah, kayaking specifically. I think I have a trip on the Missouri River in 2026. One of my friends, um, I just followed a trip that he did on the Mississippi River and the Ohio River. He's looking at doing the Missouri and he just reached out on Facebook and said, is anybody interested on paddling America's longest river? And I said, you can count me in. So, so you're going to start um, in Montana? Yeah, yeah. It starts, it starts way over by Yellowstone, I believe. And then it comes through North Dakota, down into South Dakota. Uh, and then I lose track of it. I think it goes into Missouri, maybe. I don't know if they South even border Dakota. each other. But there, there's some states it hits in the middle. And then it eventually connects with the, the Mississippi River. You'll be in Nebraska at some point. South Dakota, probably. probably. I know you'll be in Missouri, hence Missouri River. Yeah. And eventually you'll make your way to Alton, Illinois. <laughs> okay, yep, Illinois. I was going to say, I think I wanted to say it goes through Illinois, but I wasn't sure. The confluence is at Alton, Illinois. St. Louis. Okay. Basically yeah, St. so we're, we're looking at that one. Um, it's going to depend on some trips I have before it. Obviously, finances are tough when you're taking so much time off. I have a big trip in 2025, potentially abroad, that I'm looking at. I have a lot to learn before then and a lot of research to do. So it's going to depend on many things. And soon, like in the next few months, I actually have my first bikepacking trip. So very excited. Boy, you get out more than I do, I can tell you that. All I'm yeah. planning is waiting for the snow to melt to go fishing. Lots <laughs> of fishing, yes. <laughs> I have to run to Missouri and get a new boat, but that's about it for adventures for me. Okay. So anything else you'd like to mention about your trip before we sign off? I know I'll be talking to you between now and then, but our viewers won't be. Yeah. Um, you know, just a, it's like a little small snippet to add. You know, I did that water quality testing on the Boyd Sioux in the Red River, and we got our results back. I'm going to be sharing them to my blog page soon. And I think it's really interesting because the EPA has come out and announced that they will be regulating that chemical family that we were testing for. And I think a lot of the states are going to be caught off guard because we're just, it's something that's never been regulated before. And it's in such high concentrations for what the EPA is projecting. So I think okay, we're don't, gonna, don't hang up when we that. get here because I need a couple details because I like to be in the know on things. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the chemical family we tested for is called PFAS. It's a forever chemical family. You might hear it called that. Um, depending on who you ask, the family is between 4,000 and 12,000 chemicals strong. There's a ton of stuff that's involved in it. And um, those chemicals, they do not break down. They stay in our environment for a very long time. And at this point, they're getting into the food chain. They're getting into humans. They're in human tissue samples. 
and they've just kind of gone crazy. They're finding PFOS everywhere. Um, the issue that they're finding now is that after we've been using them for about 100 years, these chemicals are also extremely toxic to human health and to aquatic health. So this is something that needs to be regulated. So and what's the chemical? PFAS. PFAS. I, they're, um, what's it in? It's a huge family of chemicals. What's it in, though? I mean... It's, it's in everything. Um, they basically, these chemicals give the material you add it to some sort of resistance. So anything that's waterproof, water resistant, anything that's fire resistant, anything that's oil stain resistant, stuff like that has PFAS in it. Your Teflon pans you're cooking on at home, they have PFAS in it. It's in everything from furniture to clothing to automotive uh, industry to airline industry. It's in firefighting foam. It's in all sorts of sorts of stuff. It's everywhere. So it's just um, very daunting because it's kind of kind of all over the place. So in about twenty years, we're gonna see. Are you in a Are you a loved one injured by whatever? <laughs> so you can sue. <laughs> you know that might be the case. That might be the case. So here, all I've been really worried about around here is. Uh... Sodium getting in off of farmland and neonicotinoids. Yeah, yeah. The the PFAS they're counting on counting it in on a parts per trillion scale to tell you how fine of an increment they've gone down to. So it's it's very 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 trace amounts is enough to cause massive damage. Oh, I don't want to get into that now. Yeah, because I know what a trillion actually is when most people don't. Yeah, yeah. Well, my so. We talked briefly um, at that uh, river event that we met at. Mm-hmm. The I have celiac disease, and my celiac disease, I am very, very sensitive to cross-contamination of wheat, and that's on a parts-per-million scale. So this is even smaller than that. So I, I am well aware of the parts-per-trillion, how scary that is. So, yeah, well, we'll stay tuned, I guess. Uh, before yeah. we sign you off, uh, what is your blog, your website, and... How can people read yeah, more? So my website is Expedition Alpine. Um, you can go to www.expeditionalpine.com. Um, my Facebook and my Instagram right now are two of my most used platforms. You can find me on both um, under Expedition Alpine. On Instagram, it's Expedition underscore Alpine. I also recently started a YouTube and a LinkedIn. My LinkedIn will be sharing more of the um, scientific side of what I do on my trips because it didn't really promote very well on Facebook and Instagram. I'm still going to share it there, just not to the same in-depth level. Okay. Uh, I want to thank you for taking the time. I know you probably had to get up a little bit early to come join us, being in California and all. It's after 11 here anyways, as we're recording this. And this is our last episode, so you'll be the final guest of the season number three. So I want to thank you for joining us, and I'm glad you made it through okay. I'm glad you completed it. I'm sure you and Hank Kohler have talked a lot since then. (laughs) We have, yes. I was going to bring him in, but I'm trying to stick around an hour of a show, and I know Hank, he would be a show all by himself, easy. <laughs> yes, Maybe yeah, too. I've had a hard time keeping my, my stuff under an hour, too, so I get that. So, well, I want to thank you. That's uh, Madison Eklund, who kayaked all the way from Minneapolis, Minnesota, to the Hudson Bay. And I want to take a minute, because this is our last episode, like we mentioned, for season number three. I want to thank our naming sponsor, Half Brothers Brewing, specifically for supplying samples, coming on for two live events, a beer cast, and just taking all around good care of us. Our friend Thunder Ray, always being there for us. Brothers Firearms, Muskox, Snowblowers, and Chiller Bait Tanks. I want to thank everybody for their support, because without that... 
we don't have studio time and we don't have a show. Once again, I'd like to thank producer Dale, who's standing over here. You can't see him. Between now and next season, be sure to check out all the other Grand Forks Best Source shows. They're available at gfbestsource.com or look them up on the socials. Again, as I mentioned, this is the last episode of Season 3. If you'd like to fish with me, see what I'm up to, or look at any of the previous three seasons' podcasts, go to redrivercatfish.com. We have all the information you could ever want there. Keep up with me on Facebook at Brad Durick and Instagram at Brad Durick. Until next season, thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Brad Durick. <laughs>